It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 15th, 2021, the Mature Minor Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am in Vermont, not in Washington, D.C. I'm in Vermont, great green state Vermont. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning, CBS Face the Nation. Hello, John Dickerson from New York. Hello, David. From his new home in New York, I think. No, I'm not in the new home yet. Oh, you're not in the new home yet. I no, I'm in the quick. very room in which you spent the night. You're very small on my screen, so I couldn't really tell where you are. <laughs> and yeah, also, no, I, just we, like, we, I just look into your eyes, John. I can't see anything around you. We found a new place to live, but we haven't, haven't moved there yet. And Emily, as promised last week, is on vacation, a well-deserved vacation. And so we are joined by beloved GabFest regular Josie Duffy Rice, who's a writer in Atlanta. Hello, Josie. Hi. Thanks for having me. So this week, will Democrats figure out a way to defend voting rights, to protect voting rights? Then a new front on the vaccine war, in the vaccine war. Also, what kind of country has a vaccine war? Should kids be allowed to vaccinate themselves over their parents' objections? And then a fascinating new podcast, One Year, tries to make sense of the year 1977. We'll be joined by host Josh Levine to talk about 1977. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Texas Democrats fled the state to stop there being a legislative quorum in order to prevent or delay passage of a voting restrictions bill. Again, to try to delay passage of a voting restrictions bill, they were back in emergency session that had been called because they delayed this voting restrictions bill before uh, Republicans are adamant, who Republicans who fully control Texas government uh, legislatively and at the gubernatorial level, they're adamant that they're going to push through this voting restriction bill and had an emergency session to do it. Texas is, of course, just the latest state where Republicans are pushing major new restrictions on voting, even as Democrats in Washington, who have their own legislative desires to expand voting rights and expand access to the ballot, are struggling to find a way to get a bill that they could possibly pass, certainly, you know, even to get 50 votes for. Josie, the core of this fight is the big lie that the overwhelming majority of Republicans have embraced or the majority of Republicans have embraced that kind of the overwhelming majority Mm -hmm. stick with overwhelming, which is that Donald Trump won the election and rampant cheating through the office of the presidency to Biden. So it it strikes me that ultimately these sort of state level voting fights are important and they are real restrictions that Texas wants to do. But until there is acceptance of legitimacy of the election, by Republicans, these are really small issues compared to that big issue, which is that the millions of people who support the one of the major parties in this country no longer are willing to vouch for the credibility of elections. Yeah, you know, I find this whole thing just so, even taking the emotion out of it, just so bizarre because it really has been hijacked by what I think was probably very predictable, this adamant belief that Donald Trump actually won the election. This is a historical pattern, right? Republicans have always tried to limit access to the ballot box. They've done it a number of different ways. When the left has pointed out that these restrictions and also these abnormalities could really have an effect on our belief of, you know, on trust in the electoral system, we've been ignored. And so the fact that that narrative has been kind of taken over by the right now is both unsurprising and alarming because it really does signify what feels like a you know when I when I think back to a couple of years ago when I was working on voting rights policy we thought about voting rights as uh, an area where we could be on the offensive um where we actually thought there were ways in which we could do stuff like automatic voter registration letting even 16 year olds vote in certain local elections there were sort of all these ways that we thought we about expanding the franchise and now 
we are so clearly on the defensive and it seems like we'll be on the defensive for the next decade at least, be largely because, like you said, an entire sector of the population now has no trust in the electoral process at all. And I think, David, it's even larger than the 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 big lie. I think actually there's a huge set of kind of um, satellite issues around that, which might be even more powerful in galvanizing the entire party. I mean, the bigger lie is that voter fraud is a big problem requiring all of this emergency action. I mean, the number of people who were charged with voting fraud in the entire country in 2020 could fit on an airport shuttle bus. There are that few of them. Mm -hmm. And so despite the absolutely tiny little examples of of real fraud, not crazy conspiracy theories, not insane banana stuff. The tiny, the problem is so teeny tiny, and yet there is this massive effort across uh, all levels of Republican government to stamp out this problem. And why does that exist? Not because there's evidence that it needs to be stamped out, but because there is this market that was created by the big lie. But but if you are in support of you know stamping out fraud. You're not all the way as crazy as believing that Donald Trump won, but you're able to say something that still accesses the people who believe Donald Trump won and other Republicans. So it's kind of the safe space for people like, say, Mitch McConnell, who don't believe, you know, that Donald Trump won. And the reason we know it's a power move and not something that's being designed to root out a real problem is because of the overwhelming number of Republicans across the country who are offering basically similar measures, which is a way to use their power to keep power, which politicians have been doing since the beginning of time. And it's also, I think, a reminder that America, as much as it claims to be the most liberal democracy in history is not and has never actually been a real democracy has always limited the access access to the ballot um, for certain groups or certain people. And then even when it is ostensibly equal, has made it more difficult for people to vote, whether it be eight hour lines or voter ID or shutting down polling places or voter purges. I mean, all of these are ways in which we limit the franchise disproportionately hurting especially people of color, but also people, poor people, and really people who are going to vote, who are more likely to vote for someone, you know, on left of center. It is really, to me, just such a shameful part of our institutional processes that we take these fights as anything remotely legitimate. We discuss them in any sort of remotely legitimate way, and we know what they are. We know what they are because this is the history of America trying to limit people's ability to, um, to you know, participate in the civic process. I, I'm less troubled in some ways by the Texas law than I am by the efforts, which we've seen in a bunch of states, which would allow action to overturn election results after the fact. 14 states have enacted laws that give partisan officials more control over the election oversight. Those efforts seem to me to be, in a way, even more dangerous than the efforts to kind of constrain when and where people can vote. Because the, the nice thing about people voting is that people will make the effort to vote. Now, it is totally unfair the way the restrictions are put disproportionately on poor people and people of color. And it's grotesque, but like, at least, you know, people can still get out and vote. If the vote is then able to be uncertified, state legislature able to to step in and, and uh alter the result after the fact, that's a much more troubling situation to me. This is being debated by Mitch McConnell uh, on the, the, the general topic of voter suppression is being discussed. He says, you know, these these laws are merely trying to wind down the emergency COVID measures that were put in place in 2020. But those laws that allow partisan officials more control over the elections have nothing to do with COVID. They have nothing to do with anything that was put in place in 2020. What they're directly aimed at is the big lie from President Trump that somehow voting didn't take place, you know, in the proper way in 2020. I wonder if this Supreme Court, which has shown no appetite at all to protect the easy franchise, they've shown no appetite at all to protect the right of people to easily get to vote, whether they will be also unwilling to step in if state legislatures overstep their bounds. 
I'm worried about that. Well, they the recent decision on Arizona in which they upheld the decision of the local state legislatures, which suggests that they have no appetite for that. But the underlying premise behind your point, David, is the reason you don't want legislatures to have the ability to nullify an election is because the people who are making the decision are the ones whose basic interests are at stake. When we debate about vaccines or about climate policy or anything else, you can make some case that there might be a reason applied to the issue to win the argument. But in this case, they are the ones whose future is at stake if the election doesn't go their way. And mm-hmm. so giving them control over which way the election goes, they're a little bit compromised um, in that decision. John, why do you think it is that there is this increasing recognition among Democrats? I think an almost rec- universal recognition among Democrats that the field is very tilted against them, that the, the way gerrymandering in Republican states has helped Republicans, whereas there's much less in Democratic states, not none, but much less, the way the, the generic House ballot overwhelmingly favors Republican, the way the Electoral College overwhelmingly favors Republican, the way these voting restrictions are being put in in ways that overwhelmingly favor Republicans is a kind of existential, not existential, it's a massive threat to the Democratic Party. It's also a massive threat to the very notion of electoral democracy in this country. And yet the the efforts to constrain that, even the bills that have been proposed, like the John Lewis uh the John Lewis Act in Congress are pretty minor, and they're not going to pass anyway. Like, why is why if this is such a serious threat, and so many people recognize it as a serious threat, is the legislative response or even the political response so weak in comparison? Well, I guess a couple of things. One, and I would add in that the fact that Joe Biden, who says this is the greatest threat since the Civil War, which is maybe overdoing it a bit, um, isn't isn't going the the if you really really believe that then joe biden would say we must end the filibuster today and the idea that like he's not going to muck in with what the senate is um the prerogatives of the senate he doesn't want to cross that boundary is kind of silly if you're talking about this really is the greatest threat since the civil war so that would seem to support your your point a little bit more the for the people act has seems to me to be stronger than the john lewis voting rights act i mean it automatic voter registration ends gerrymandering um, uh, requires early voting for two weeks. That does seem to be m- uh, a stronger measure than you're talking about, David. But I think one of the problems is is obviously ending the filibuster, which would allow some of these um, laws perhaps to pass, is, is in the hands of two Democratic senators who don't want to do it. Um, I think also there's a lot of there's a lot of way in which President Biden's speech this week with its uh, overheated rhetoric and a lot of the the upset about this, which because there's not as much very much that the president can do, actually, but the upset at him and the desire uh, to have him go out and give the kind of speech he gave this week is about telling Democratic voters, get out and vote in 2022. I mean, this is a base motivation effort in addition to the underlying cause, which I'm not saying is invalid. I'm just saying there are two, two tracks here. And part of what President Biden is trying to do is say, get out and vote. And so the interesting question for political scientist is, in 2022, let's imagine Republicans pass no voting restrictions. Would the turnout of of Democratic voters without these voting restrictions be as high as it will be now that there's going to be basically a systemic campaign from now until Election Day in 2022, in which Democrats are told the vote is being taken from you, which is a great turnout mechanism, which would be higher, no provisions and some other motivation or provisions passed and the motivation of having your vote be threatened untestable hypothesis josie i would like you to connect these things that are happening in texas one extraordinarily restrictive abortion law that the legislature just passed that would give citizens the right to sue to stop other citizens from getting an abortion and just punish doctors who might provide abortions two Another law the legislature just passed that essentially allows every anyone who wants to to carry a gun around without a permit in Texas, these voting restrictions that are going to be passed by emergency session, and at the same time, the lack of any significant legislative action in Texas over the power grid failure that killed hundreds of people and paralyzed the state this winter, um, or maybe it was this spring even. What is going on in Texas and in your state of Georgia that is causing this kind of discordancy between the issues that are affecting most of the people in the state and the issues that these legislatures are focusing on. I think on one hand, this is yet another sign of like 
right wing prizing of freedom and liberty gone amok, just completely warped. You see what happens when a state kind of siphons out all of its public responsibility to keep up basic things like utilities and the power grid, while saying it's fighting for citizens because it's ensuring your freedom. That freedom they're framing is the freedom to punish people for taking care of their bodies or the freedom to carry a gun everywhere publicly without um, having to register. And so I think what we see here yet again, and especially with the voting rights laws, is who does the does the Texas legislature, the Georgia legislature, but really the Republican Party, who do they think deserve freedom and who and who doesn't? Apparently, the answer is not women who have the right to to choose um, as the Supreme Court has held and will probably at least hold for a few more months uh, before they inevitably overturn Roe. Um, but uh, also, you know, who has the right to be free from gun violence, right? Who has the right to show up and vote? I don't know how sustainable this is, because I do think that there is a sense of discomfort with government that is refuses to do basic stuff like hold up infrastructure. But a lot of this is, as you said, a culture war based on a sort of moral panic around these issues that has been perpetuated by the right. And what worries me is just that this is a cycle. It doesn't get better. It doesn't inevitably get better. The move into a world in which we confuse freedom and liberty for an operative society continues. And it's kind of driven by what we see happening in Texas and what we see happening um, in other states. Slate Plus members, you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn. And you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. This week, we're going to be talking about classical music. How bad is it anyway? That's going to be our Slate Plus topic this week. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus is just $1 for your first month. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Tennessee is a vaccination mess. The vaccination rates are quite low for COVID, the COVID vaccine. Now the state's top immunization leader, Dr. Michelle Fiscus, is out. Fiscus had distributed a memo that just confirmed Tennessee law, which 
states that some teenagers who are called uh, mature minors, so 14 to 18-year-olds, under certain circumstances, could be eligible for vaccines without their parents' consent. And that really infuriated a lot of Republican legislators in Tennessee. She was pushed out of state government. All state-sponsored vaccine efforts aimed at kids have been stopped. Even state-sponsored vaccine efforts that have nothing to do with the COVID vaccine, that have to do with just regular vaccination, have been discouraged. And the state is not promoting regular vaccination for kids. This uh, incident in Tennessee just raised uh, or highlighted a, a discussion that's going on all around the country, which is what are the rights of children to be vaccinated if their parents don't want them to be vaccinated? Because we have enormous numbers of people in this country who are skeptical of vaccinations and don't want their kids to be vaccinated. And then you have kids who are increasingly, uh, uh, you know, self-aware and intelligent and, and educated who want to make the choice to get vaccinated. And where do those two things butt up against each other? So Josie, you're a lawyer. Mm. Should mature minors, should someone who is, let, let's start with this. Should a five-year-old be allowed to get vaccinated without their parents' permission? Oh, it's such a hard question. Um, a five-year-old? That's not a hard question. It is not a tough question, I guess, objectively. But I think subjectively, the truth is that all of these questions are really hard. And that like, at some point, what the line is between like what you should be able, when you can decide what to do with your body and when you can't, is hard to define. Should the government be able to make the decision of what you do in your household and um, what a child gets to do? Or is that a parent's decision? And I think like... It's complicated. All right. 10-year-old, 14-year-old, 17-year-old. 14-year-old? I think you can make that decision at 14. But then I guess I think that if you decide you don't want to get vaccinated, your parents should make you. So (laughs) this kind of goes, I guess it just only depends on what your decision actually is. John Dickerson. What I love about this question is I think one of the major parts of it is that the reason these laws are in place is the, the science and the idea that up until a certain age, You don't understand how to perceive risk as a teenager. You don't necessarily know how to make decisions about these kinds of things in your your health and welfare because you just haven't developed sufficiently. However, in our modern political climate in which madness prevails um, and madness that is particularly – that to which adults are particularly susceptible – do we have to think of a whole new way of thinking on this kind of issue where, in fact, the adults are more susceptible to lack of impulse control, lack of risk perception because of the political climate in which they've marinated themselves, and so that they are actually thinking less clearly than a 14-year-old? I don't know that anybody could make that case in, in court, but it, it's not clear at all that the, that the adults are, who are denying the kids access to vaccinations are doing so based on clear reason. Now, you you may decide that there's a societal good in just allowing parents to have control over their kids until they're 18. But to the extent the law is based on the idea that the older people are thinking more clearly, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that they are not thinking more clearly. Then the second question I would ask to both of you is, is it okay to weaken the standards, whatever they may be and whatever they, however they may derive for when a, a an adolescent has autonomy. Is it okay to weaken those if there's a public health good in doing so? You know, so in this case, the doctors would make the case that if you get more adolescents vaccinated, it's better for the adolescents. Numbers are creeping up, largely because the adults are getting vaccinated. And then secondarily, there are a, there is asymptomatic transmission as a result of adolescents who are infected but aren't showing symptoms, which has a public health down, uh, you know disadvantage, obviously. I, I think it is true that parents are often irrational. They often act impulsively around their children. Uh, but children often act impulsively around their parents, too. Everyone is susceptible to to the vagaries of life. If you're saying that maybe it's okay for a 14-year-old to make the decision to get vaccinated, would you say the same thing that a 14-year-old could make the decision not to get vaccinated? Right. And I think that's the hard question. Against their parents' wishes? Um, because... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I... I think my opinion does kind of change. I think the public health goal here, right, is vaccination. And so, but that's obviously not how the law works and not how policy should work. It shouldn't, we shouldn't, um, that's not how we should make decisions. So it is a, it's a, it's a really tough, tough question. Uh, you know, like I have a three-year-old and a 10-month-old and 
if they could get vaccinated to, you know, if tomorrow they said they're eligible for the COVID vaccine, I'm not sure that I would immediately rush out to vaccinate my 10 month old with something that like I, there's not more evidence of probably. Um, But at what age would I be totally fine doing that? I think by 14, I'd, I'd be more okay with it. And I don't have bright line rules for for when I'm okay with things as a parent and when I'm not. Um, and you can see how this, even people who support vaccination, this becomes kind of a complicated topic when you're talking about your own children and you're talking about a new vaccine. I mean, I think the, the thing that makes vaccines different than other health interventions is that other health interventions, for the most part, are individual health interventions to it to affect the health, to improve the health of an individual person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas a vaccine is a health intervention to improve the health of a society. And that the the act of one person doing it, it's valuable for that one person. I'm certainly very glad I have a COVID vaccination. I'm glad I just got my shingles vaccination. Um, Mm -hmm. But mostly, or not mostly, but it it is also hugely valuable in increasing the, the protection that all of us feel. And therefore, there has to be some bias built into the law that for a, a health measure that is that is broadly a public health measure that society deems important and that medical officials deem urgent, that the, the, the preference is vaccination unless, that the unless has to be pretty strong. The preference the law gives towards vaccination needs to be strong in a way that it doesn't need to be strong for things which are just private but uh, private medical act. Do you think that's still true in a situation like this one where kids really aren't that at risk, right? I mean, it is true that COVID has ravaged the nation and killed more than half a million people. But most of those, the vast, vast, I mean, I think 0.05% of them, right, were, were children. Um, I think that's around 300 people. That's not nothing. We don't want to, we don't want to pretend like that's nothing. But we also, um, what is the severity of the public health problem that we're trying to address among the population that we're willing to override either right. an individual's autonomy to say no or a parent's autonomy to say, I don't want this for my child. And does that change? So it's, it is changing a little bit with the Delta variant, which more kids seem to be getting. Right. And you also have this asymptomatic transmission issue and you have the problem with long COVID, which even though adolescents, when they get sick, in some cases don't get as sick, as adults, although in a lot of this Delta stuff, at least what I've been reading, they've been getting s- super sick. Nevertheless, the the issues with long COVID and irregular heartbeat uh, lasting for 75 days and memory issues and all kinds of other things, our understanding of the the downside of getting sick is is evolving. David, can I reframe your question back to you, which is, does this does the public health equation, I guess this is for both of you, change on vaccines in a way that was different with masks. And by, by, by what I what I mean by that is, if you make a local decision to, to give parents control over vaccination in a local area, because other parts of the country are vaccinated, it's essentially a localized decision. When you were not choosing to mandate masks, and we were in a, which was during a period of no vaccination, your choice to not wear a mask could in fact hurt somebody 10 states over because the virus could hop over into other states. But now that vaccines have essentially walled off places like Vermont and Massachusetts where vaccine rates are high, is this more of a local decision and therefore um, different than public health decisions that we made at a national level during the earlier period of COVID? It occurs to me that in an era where distrust of government and especially federal government, is so high in so many ways on so many planes that having a local effort, right, a community effort from people that maybe you trust, you recognize, you, uh, you know, feel like they are more familiar to your your environment is probably the best way to go (laughs) Um, in terms of actually ensuring that people feel comfortable getting vaccines. Because ultimately, what we're talking about is so much bigger. I mean, on, on one hand, there maybe isn't much bigger than this vaccine and the impact that COVID has had, but also just the attempt to force people to do something when the fact that they don't want to do it is a sign of the institutional rot to begin with, right? And we're in a tough position because what the way that we used to think about 
um, vaccination and anti-vaxxers were they were fringe and most reasonable people will make the reasonable decision. And we're seeing now that the population of people who who don't want this vaccine, don't want their children to get this vaccine, et cetera, has grown. And so it strikes me that like actually having a local effort probably is the best way to go. We're not going to it's this is not going to be like a national come together moment around the vaccine um, for everybody. And so we need people within communities to actually be making that point. Yeah, that brings us back to Tennessee. I think that's a great point, Josie, that what we have in a situation in Tennessee where where because of this this blow up over the mature minor situation, vaccination in that state is at risk, not merely for COVID, but for all diseases. So mm-hmm. kids are not going to get their MMR vaccines. They're mm-hmm. not going to get their their uh, other, their HPV vaccines, their, their hepatitis vaccines, which are essential for the public health and essential for their health. The entire Republican infrastructure of the state is now turned against vaccines overall. And that's that's tragic. It'd be much better for there to be sort of a Tennessee way to fight vaccinations. It might obviously be better if we lived in a society where there was universal support for vaccination and it mm-hmm. wasn't a problem. But absent that, a Tennessee way to vaccinate people is better than no way to vaccinate people. And so I would endorse that. I also, just a, as a final point on this kind of uh, minors max vaccinating themselves point i think it is such a controversial issue and it probably affects so few kids that it's almost not worth having the fight about people should just be like okay parents make this decision let's not have this fight because if this fight inflames people so much that it that it makes the anti-vax sentiment even higher it's going to do damage as we were seeing in tennessee so like let's just not have the fight let's not allow teenagers to vaccinate themselves and and just except that that's a loss for a few hundred kids around the country. Our beloved Slate colleague, Josh Levine, has just started a new podcast, One Year, and it is not how long it will last. It is about one year. It looks at episodes in a single year, episodes that help shape what we've become. And he started with the year 1977. That's his first season. And his first episode it is an incredible account of Anita Bryant and the fight over an anti-gay ordinance in Miami in 1977. The second episode is about the fall of Jimmy Carter's pro-marijuana drug czar and how that helped shape pot policy for a generation until now. So, Josh, welcome to the GabFest. You've been on the GabFest. Welcome back to the GabFest. Yes. I think you've been on. Sure. I've, I've been on uh, several times. Always a pleasure. Just knowing that you remember... So fondly, my time's on the GabFest makes it even even more delightful to be here. So what what is the premise of One Year as an overall show? And then why 1977 as a year that changed everything? So the premise of it kind of coming off of working on Slow Burn for five seasons now, excited about the sixth season as, as well with Joel Anderson on the LA Riots, you know, having done that show where the DNA is looking at these huge events that have had extremely consequential impacts on the the way that we live now and looking at them extremely closely and seeing what it is that we remember, maybe how that memory is wrong, what it is that we've forgotten. Wanting to use that kind of toolkit, but applying it to um, a whole bunch of different events and seeing how they bounce off of each other. What are some of the kind of connections and resonances? Understanding that when, like, say, Watergate is happening or the Iraq war is happening, there's 10, 20, a million other things going on in America that are also influencing the way that our politics works, our, our culture works. And maybe having the opportunity to also examine things that aren't the biggest stories in American history, um, I thought could be fruitful and fulfilling as well. And then why 1977? I've always been fascinated with that period in our history, which sits between the Nixon era and the Reagan era. And it's this like brief moment when it seemed like something extremely different was happening. There's all these possibilities that are opening up after Watergate and after Vietnam. You could kind of argue that the country that we live in now is starting to take shape in particular ways, but also a lot of the promise of that moment was unfulfilled and unrealized. 
And so sitting in that moment and trying to figure out why things happened the way that they did was a project that I was very interested in. All right. So, Josh, tell us about the first episode. Yeah. So in 1977, there was this uh, gay rights ordinance that came up in Dade County, Florida, which is Miami, where it was basically just adding affectional or sexual preference to this ordinance, saying that you can't discriminate against people by affectional or sexual preference in employment and housing and public accommodations. And this hadn't been a particularly controversial thing around the country. There had been nearly 40 cities that had adopted this language, and it did get actually adopted by the county commissioners in Dade County, Um, except as it's getting adopted, Anita Bryant, who's this Christian entertainer, former beauty queen, orange juice spokeswoman, steps forward and decides, I'm going to fight this. And she fights it on the local level, but the kind of vigor and enthusiasm and the sort of outrageous rhetoric. And, you know, she starts this organization, um, Save Our Children, and you can tell what the rhetoric is just based on the name of the organization, inflames this local fight into what essentially becomes a national referendum on homosexuality. Just looking at the episodes, Josh, I was kind of shocked at how so much of this feels like it could be 2021. (laughs) I mean, thinking about the gay ordinance and the Save Our Children and the bathrooms and then, you know, Jimmy Carter being the first president to endorse legalization of marijuana. This is not a question. This is just a comment. Um, I'm one of those annoying people that gives a comment, not a question. But uh, I'm excited about this in particular because it feels like so much of it still resonates. Literally, the same fights are still resonating right now. Yes. What I found in reading and also listening to what the anti-gay rhetoric was in 1977 is that it hits the exact same beats and often uses the exact same language as anti-trans rhetoric in 2021. Um, And so there is this feeling that we're fighting the exact same battles or the exact same battles are being fought. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Mm -hmm. terrain has just shifted a little, a little bit, but the sides are the same and the kind of art, even the arguments And on marijuana, I mean, Chuck Schumer just introduced legislation on Wednesday of this week to decriminalize marijuana on a federal level. I mean, this is a thing that's and and there's not any expectation that it will pass. So maybe in 10 years, another senator will will introduce legislation. But that is a fight, again, where, where we're sitting in 2021 around legalization and decriminalization. We're in a very different place than we were back then. But the arguments are really similar. And I I think it is really helpful to understand the history and where we've been to kind of get a sense of why things are playing out the way they are now. When you um, see those currents, Josh, the anti-gay rhetoric in 1977 with Anita Bryant seems to connect to the anti-counterculture part of the conservative message from the 60s, Wallace, Nixon, So you can see where that starts earlier and carries through this. But one thing that didn't exist in 1977 that exists today and that's familiar from these flashpoint cultural things that are sort of created out of nowhere is there wasn't a um, media structure to feed all that through, or was there? In other words, how did this become a national issue when you didn't have a cable channel devoted to promoting individual cultural moments How did that happen in 1977 with a much different media landscape? Yeah. So first, just to connect to your previous point, um, another kind of conservative movement that was happening right at the same time that we're not doing a standalone episode on, but is just sort of looming everything, is the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment. And Phyllis Schlafly and Anita Bryant are talked about as this kind of dyad, but also they often appear together. Um, and so those are things that are kind I of... I conflate them in my head. I honestly, it like took me decades to separate them. Well, you know, one reason I think that might be the case is that this sounds ridiculous, but they both got pied in the face in, in <laughs> 1977. And so that um, was another thing that was, was happening a lot, was people were getting <laughs> pied in the face in 1977. But um, back to your question, John, I think a, a couple things. First, There was a lot of neighbor-to-neighbor kind of community conversations going on um, with the Save Our Children thing. A lot of it was in church that people were 
receiving these sort of messages and sermons about what Anita Bryant was was doing. But she was on the cover of all the news magazines. She was on the network news. The newspapers were covering this. Um, national newspapers were sending reporters down to Miami. So there was, I think, very broad awareness of what was going on. And on the gay rights side of things, the real kind of comprehensive close-to-the-ground coverage was happening in gay community newspapers, whereas the quote-unquote mainstream newspapers were often presenting the Save Our Children side as the side. And, um, you know, the Miami Herald there took on an editorial stance that was very pro-Anita Bryant. They would run the Save Our Children ads that were saying very literally gay men were assaulting children, promoting that vicious lie that gay men were a threat and a menace. And this was allowed to run and was being kind of promulgated without any question by this newspaper. Whatever media ecosystem did exist back then, the the story was amply covered um, by it. And that coverage was, I think, tilted in a particular direction. Josh, I want to go back to the premise of one year as a as a as an entire structure from a sort of historical perspective. I I think I proposed once when I was at Slate that we put a whole bunch of uh, numbers in a hat for years, like going back to like eleven hundred, you know, thirteen forty two. 1726, and you just pull, you pull. Would this have to be like Jamiroquai's hat? <laughs> like, how It'd big be of a big hat, hat are we talking It'd be a big about? Hat. A sorting hat. You'd pick a number out, and you'd have to write the 1726, the year that changed everything, or, you know, 19, uh, 1904, the year that changed everything. And the premise, my, my kind of basic belief, having looked at, you know, all these books about 1968, 1491, 1861, but then there are books like, our colleague Fred Kaplan wrote a book, 1959, The Year That Changed Everything. I don't know if that's the actual subtitle, Fred, but it was close to that. Is it totally arbitrary what year you pick? Is every year equally available for one year? Or is it, in fact, are there years that really change things more than other years? I think, yeah, the premise of the show isn't that 1977 changed everything more than Fred Kaplan's year changed everything or more than 1142 changed everything. Oof, I good think, year, 1142. Cool. Um, <laughs> Venerable Bede. Hard, hard to find people from 1142 that are both available and willing <laughs> to be interviewed about their experiences during that year. So there's some really practical reasons to choose a year from more recent uh, history. But part of it is honestly is practical that I wanted to pick a period that felt like history, but then feel wasn't so distant that we couldn't talk to people that were present in these moments. I was familiar with the 70s from the research that I had done for my book on the welfare queen phenomenon. And I also didn't want to choose a year that was dominated by one standalone single event. I wanted it to feel honest and true to say, like, to understand this year, you need to understand all of these sort of disparate things that were happening and the connections between them. And so, yeah, that I'm not making an argument that, oh, like, screw 1978. It's all about 1977. It was, I'm interested in this period. Let's look at a list of, you know, do some pre- preliminary research, look at the list. And this was a year that seemed potentially fruitful and interesting. Am I underselling it, Plots? Well, I, it is actually the year that changed everything. No, no, just I, I'm just, uh, you're kind of answering the question backwards, which is, could you have, is it, if you'd picked 1978, would you get just as fruitful? A, is every year just as fruitful? Y- Does history, in fact, have yes. any pattern, any any rises and falls? Well, it depends whether you, wh- how you choose the initiating event. So in 1977, I think Apple's incorporated. So you can you can draw the entire history of the personal computer from that event. It didn't happen in 1977, right. but it was initiated in 77. So if you chose 77, you could say all these following things happened and these currents that created Apple were were beginning and that that has changed modern life as we know it. As, as we would expect only... from John, he has hacked the algorithm of one of one year. <laughs> yeah, and if you, but if you pick 19, and if you pick 1978, you could say that's the year Atari was incorporated. Yeah. Or that's the year, that's the year Apple introduced its first product and therefore... Precisely. Yeah, I think that... Yeah. What we found is that it's a really useful constraint. Like, uh, 
I'm, I'm sure you guys can relate to this in various projects that you've done. There are some constraints that are not useful because you end up having to throw out things that are really good stories because they don't fit whatever your narrow premise is. But the premise of one year is extraordinarily capacious in that you can tell any kind of story in a calendar year. You can tell stories about politics and culture and science and religion and sports. And I do think, to answer your initial question, David, you can find really great stories on those subjects in any given year. And they'll just add up to something different. And so, yeah, the argument of the series is less to understand this year. You'll understand all of American history. It's like to understand this year, here are the stories that will help you uh, understand it. Am I getting ahead of myself if I ask you what your next year will be? What season two, what the year will be? I don't think we've announced that yet, Josie, but I'll tell you that it's in the 90s. Can we guess? Ooh. Or you, will you not hey. tell us? You won't tell us. I mean, you, you, have, you have 10 guesses. Why don't you just guess all of them? You're not going <laughs> to no, tell I will, us. <laughs> I, will not, I, will not, I will not tell you. I wonder if you could do a Neanderthal, either a Neanderthal year or a Neanderthal event, which is to say a, something that seemed to be absolutely raging in 1977 and had lots and lots of news magazine covers written about the scourge of X or the fundamental reorientation of human life resulting from X that then just never panned out. That was just like Y2K or something that, you mm. know, just never met all the expectations of the moment as a kind of corollary question to David's. We are doing an episode on Laetrile. Do you guys know what Laetrile is? I remember Laetrile. I don't. No. That was a thing that was going to change everything, maybe. And now nobody really knows what it is. It was a cancer drug, and it became this battle where state legislatures all over the country legalized this thing, often saying, we don't think it works, but people should have the freedom to choose their medical treatment. It was very, like, very kind of directly and consciously, like, post-Roe v. Wade rhetoric around the right to choose. And doctors were saying, this is total quackery. This thing doesn't work, and it's actually going to be harmful to people. But there was this kind of current and belief that people should be given the opportunity to do what they think is best. And it, um, you know, the story we tell at the center of it gets to be extremely fraught around who has the right to choose for mm -hmm. who. It's a really fascinating story, and it is a great example of a thing that if you were in 1977 you would have done a bunch of segments about it on the GabFest. Everybody knew what Laetrile was and had an opinion about it. And our producer, Evan Chung, is, is doing that. It's from Apricot Pits, right? Wow. It was from Apricot Pits. Josh Levine has a new podcast, One Year. It's great. Thank you, David. Check it out wherever you get podcasts. Thank you all. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you're having some extremely cold drink, because I'm sure Atlanta is frighteningly, terrifyingly hot. <laughs> what are you going to be chattering about with your loved ones, Josie? I am going to be talking about the thing I've been talking about nonstop in my household, which is this book, Detransition Baby. Have we already done this one? No. Nope. I don't think so. Oh, this is amazing. Because every time I do a cocktail chatter, I'm late. So I'm very excited to be talking about this. This book, Detransition Baby, um, which was written by Tori Peters, and it's just a, her debut book. I mean, the title really tells you everything it's about. It's about um, two trans women who were in a relationship together. One of them detransitioned, uh, and the other one wants to have um, a family and a baby. And the the trans woman who detransitioned is now in a relationship with her boss. Anyway, it's a complicated story, but it's amazingly written by uh, Tori Peters, who is a trans woman. It's incredible. I en enjoyed every second of reading it, and I highly recommend. Hmm. All right. That sounds good. I need to read. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Mine's a double chatter. One, uh, the first is that it appears that Italy has prohibited all large cruise ships into Venice, which... Venice is this tiny jewel of a city, which is a bit of a canary in the coal mine for the march of modernity. It's being assaulted by the rise of sea level. They've put up a um, basically a barrier that rises out of the sea to block, which was successfully deployed to keep the floods from eroding the 
beauties of Venice and the cruise ships do the same thing by not only what they do to the canals, but also what, what the disgorgement of so many people on the streets of Venice have done. So it's a small way to look at the larger issues of climate change and of just basically our rapacious modern desires trampling on uh, the beauties of antiquity. So they've, in a somewhat of surprise move, denied, I believe, all major big cruise ships. The other thing is the New York Times has a fascinating feature where you can look up the change in the temperature of wherever you were born. You just put in where you were born and the year, and it will show you how many days basically how the temperature has increased over the course of your lifetime. So I was born in McLean, Virginia. There were 13 days above 90 degrees in McLean, Virginia. Uh, and by the time I am 80, there will be 50 of such days. So it just is a tidy way of showing the uh, unimpeded march of temperature increases in wherever you were born. Yeah. I mean, the the scary ones aren't like McLean, Virginia. The scary ones are, you know, in South Texas or Alabama or God forbid, mm-hmm. parts of India where it's not, you know, it's not, it's not thirteen to fifty. It's it's you know seventy to three hundred, sure. and it's mm-hmm. just it's it's t- it's frightening. It's a frightening. Although to the extent that it brings it home to you, in other words, yeah. people could say, "Oh, well, I don't want to live in one of those crazy places. I'm yeah. fine." It does kind of show you that, in fact, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, I grew up in a house in D.C. without air conditioning. And it wasn't, mm. it wasn't suffering. It was fine. That is really hard to do now. My chatter uh, is entirely self-interested. I want to announce something about CityCast, my beloved CityCast, my day job. We create daily podcasts and newsletters for cities around the country. We launched in Chicago and Denver in uh, March. And I hope if you live in Chicago and Denver, you've had a chance to listen to our podcast and to get our newsletter. So you can go to citycast.fm to do that. And I'm really excited that because we've sort of seen this starting to work and we've seen extremely engaged audiences that want a new kind of news for their city that we're about to expand. And we're going to add eight new cities to CityCast. Wow. So I want you to know about this. If you live in one of those cities, I want you to sign up to get our newsletter and sign up to be told when the podcast is launched. And if if you're somebody who works in journalism, maybe we've got a job for you because we're hiring in these cities. So these cities are Boise, Houston, Las Vegas, Nashville, Oakland, Omaha, Pittsburgh, and Salt Lake City. So please go to citycast.fm slash jobs if you're interested in a job with us or citycast.fm just to put your name on an email list. But um, GapFest listeners have been a great core of our Denver and Chicago audience and have GabFest listeners have also uh, recommended great, great colleagues to me, and, and I'm working with people who listen to the GabFest who heard about it here. So if you are in any of those cities or know people in any of those cities, Boise, Houston, Las Vegas, Nashville, Oakland, Omaha, Pittsburgh, or Salt Lake City, please uh, check out citycast.fm. And when you add a ninth city, Atlanta is here. Yeah. <laughs> Atlanta, Atlanta's coming. New York City's coming. Joss's Twin Cities is coming. We're already in Bridget's Chicago. Emily's New Haven may may have to wait. Um, <laughs> listeners, you have sent us awesome chatters. You continue to send them to us by tweeting them to us at, at @slategabfest. And this week's uh, listener chatter comes from Chris Heiberger, and he's recommending a New Yorker story about environmental activism in the Catholic Church. And it has a Gabfest hook, which I'll tell you about at the end. Hey, Gabfest. This is Chris Heiberger from Brooklyn, New York. And my chatter this week is about a remarkable story in The New Yorker from February, written by David Owen, titled How a Young Activist is Helping Pope Francis Battle Climate Change. It's about a woman named Molly Burhans, a cartographer and environmentalist and polymath who is trying to move the Catholic Church to take action on climate change through better land management and make good on the Pope's Laudato Si encyclical on our moral responsibility to take care of the earth. Molly has an incredible personal story and unique combination of interests, and she's founded an organization called Goodlands, which uses GIS mapping technology and data analysis to reveal insights into all sorts of issues, from the environment to where to build new schools to how to protect children from abuse. 
So the piece is about the importance of data infrastructure, but also about how change can happen in large institutions. Again, the story is how a young activist is helping Pope Francis battle climate change in The New Yorker. And she's also featured in the latest episode of the Solvable podcast put out by Pushkin Industries. I highly recommend everyone check those out. Thanks. All right. So what's the GabFest hook? The GabFest hook is that Solvable is produced by none other than our very own producer, Jocelyn Frank. So, Joss, you're all over the GabFest this week. Mazel tov. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced, as I just said, by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. And please tweet chatter to us there. It doesn't have to be chatter that involves one of us. Four always delightful Josie Duffy Rice in Atlanta and John Dickerson, New York. I'm David Plotz. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, it's so great having you, Josie. Come back anytime. I think you're coming back again this summer, maybe. I can't remember. I am. Good. I'm very excited. Yeah. Uh, We will talk to you all next week and we'll talk to Josie soon. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Um, So... I have a confession. The confession is, I don't even know why we're doing this as a Slate Plus. This is just, I had it kind of, I had it like almost allergic hive-like reaction to something yesterday, which was that um, in, I'm staying with my parents in Vermont for a few days um, with one of my kids and, and my father loves to listen to classical music. And so they put on some classical music. It was Sibelius, I think. That's a, I think that's a classical composer. And I almost broke out into hives. I just couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I cannot stand being in rooms where classical music is played. And I just want to get to the bottom of it. Is it my fault or is this classical music, is classical music just terrible and no one is admitting it? Or is it just something that's wrong with me because of some daddy issue where because my father loves classical music, I have revolted against it. But my mother loves folk music and I love folk music. So what is happening I never feel guilty about not having read a book. I never feel guilty about like not speaking a language. I feel really guilty and ashamed that I loathe classical music and, and there's something wrong with me. So what's wrong with me, John? Well, that is such an open area for inquiry, but on this narrow (laughs) question, um, is it all classical music? You can't stand any classical music or it's just certain kinds of classical music. There's like a few pieces which I know pretty well from childhood. So the Brahms's Academic Festival Overture, I love. There's a a, a leader, Beethoven or maybe Schubert, Andaferna Galipta, which there's a Cecilia Bartoli that my father used to play for me that I love. And occasionally I'll listen to an opera and be like, That's, that opera is pretty good. I like an opera. Um, but almost everything else, I just get, I can't, I can't stand it. Sure. Well, I... So, because what I'm wondering is, I have a somewhat similar feeling with jazz music, which is that there is, but actually it's not similar at all, but I, but I do recognize an inkling of what you're talking about, which is some jazz music, despite my overwhelming affection for jazz and deep, the ability to be deeply moved by some jazz, some of it is absolutely a disaster. And if I, and if it's, if I hear it, I can't do anything else. I wonder if it's the fact that classical music should be appreciated that you're basically trying to eat a delicious meal in the wrong context that that classical music is best listened to and concentrated on by itself but that it that it has become the background music of our lives um in a way that is both inconsistent with the form and reminds you GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.